Bow, 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 bow. Hello, and welcome to Strange Sound. This is Joe. Glad to have you with us once again. Thanks for listening. Very much appreciate it. Well, here we are. It's the fourth episode of Strange Sound. Uh, we're getting off to kind of a slow start, but um, I think we're hitting all of our marks. Uh, let me start, as I always do, with my standard disclaimer. Standard disclaimer. The opinions expressed on Strange Sound are my own. They represent no one else but myself. These are my opinions. They are not shared by anyone else that I know, not my wife, not my siblings, not my cousins, not my, uh, I don't know, not my employer, not my dog, not my cats. Nobody thinks like I do. No, well, not really. Uh, this is just me. And, you know, like I said, I'm a cisgender, white, male, boomer, you know, so it's all about me. And there you have it. Okay, so we've got that out of the way. Strange Sound, episode four. On this episode of Strange Sound, uh, I wanted to talk about the Forever Wars. But let me just preface that with um, just an acknowledgement that these are very difficult times that we're going through as of this recording. Um, pretty much all of the schools in New York State have been shut down because of the coronavirus, um, the growing pandemic scare. And uh, it's pretty creepy. I went to the, I went to our local supermarket the other day, yesterday, and uh, a lot of empty shelves, long line of people waiting at the checkout. Um, dramatic difference from the week before. Very strange, strange scene. People weren't freaking out. They seemed to just be doing their normal shopping, but they were there early. And it was clear that people were cognizant of the fact that if they didn't shop now, that they weren't going to get the things that they needed. And they didn't end up getting a lot of the things they needed anyway. Uh, paper products were completely cleaned out. And uh, it's really it's really kind of a freak show. It's very creepy. So I want to acknowledge that. Um, I know that people are feeling stressed out. I want to just say hang in there. I know these are difficult times. Uh, we'll get through this. It's upsetting, though, and I, I understand. Um, I'm extremely upset over this. This has not been a happy week. Anyway, I wanted to um, talk a little bit about one of the aspects of the forever wars that we appear to be stuck in, have been stuck in for what seems like forever. It's really been solidly for the last 20 years since... Uh, the September 11th attacks in 2001 and the aftermath, though, the architecture for these wars um, long predates that time. And these wars have created their own logic, as wars often do. But I think part of, and I this again, this is not something that's 
just me talking. I think a lot of people understand this and I'm not the first to express this opinion. But I think a large part of the reason why we have so-called forever wars, wars that just seem to go on and on, is that we don't have conscription. Um, we no longer have conscription. So that creates a dynamic that I don't think we've ever seen, at least in the recent history of the United States, um, since back, I believe, in the Civil War. And let me... Let me preface my comments by saying this. I don't want to I don't want this to come off as sounding as though I'm an advocate for conscription for the draft. Um I just want to make clear that conscription is always problematic. I happen to be from an age group that uh missed the draft for the Vietnam era what they call the Vietnam era. Uh, that that uh, cycle of a conscription ran out um, a few years before I turned 18. I also missed the um, draft registration that was instituted during the Carter administration and the late Carter administration after the um, Iran hostage crisis got underway. Um, that applied to everyone who was born, um, January 1st, 1960 and later. So if you are turning 18 and you were born, well, obviously at that, at that point you were, you would be 20 (laughs) because it was in 1980. But if you were born uh, on or after January 1st, 1960, uh, then you needed to register for the draft starting in 1980 at some point. I don't remember exactly what the month was. I, I remember being at New Paltz, SUNY New Paltz, um, where I spent about a year. I spent the entire year of 1980 there. And that's 40 years ago. And... Um, they started up registration for the draft once again. I was born in 1959, so I missed that. Um, They stopped requiring people to register for the draft in the 1970s after the end of the Vietnam War. I think the last time period when you needed to register for the draft was in the mid-70s. I know it was after 1973. They stopped the draft in 1973, but registration continued until, I think, 1975 or 76. So there was that gap in there where you didn't even have to register for the draft. That's when I turned 18. So uh, my cohort at the end of the baby boom didn't need to register for the draft. My brother Matt, who's four years younger than me, did have to register. He was never called, obviously, because they never instituted the draft, but he did have to register. Um, And some folks younger than me, some folks older than me had been registered. But uh, so the reason why I'm saying this is because I want to make clear I... (laughs) 
I was against the draft when I was younger, uh, particularly when my older brother was eligible to be drafted. Um, he ended up with a middling kind of draft lottery number. He was Vietnam era. Uh, never, never was called. Uh, he was a little too young to be in in the thick of it. So he turned eighteen in uh, I think nineteen seventy. So he uh, he missed that. But we were quite worried about him being drafted. I, I was certainly against that, and I would never advocate for conscription, you know, on someone else's behalf, particularly since I didn't ever have to face it. So I really wouldn't have a leg to stand on there. That wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be fair for me to be (laughs) actively in favor of that. Um, What I am saying is the draft is one of the ways that the populace at large is connected to whatever our foreign policy is. Uh, particularly with regard to foreign deployments of troops. The reason why our wars go on and on, the reason why we still have troops in Afghanistan, the reason why we have troops in Iraq, the reason why we have troops in Syria and deployed all over in in hot zones um, all over the world is particularly in those in those sort of longer lasting uh, conflicts like Afghanistan. There's no single reason, but one of the primary reasons is that people are not connected to the conflict in some intimate way. It's an abstraction to most people. If you do not have a relative or if you if you yourself are not being deployed or are liable to be deployed you do not have a direct connection to this conflict it's as simple as that and if you do not have a direct stake in this conflict on a personal level then your opposition to the conflict if you are opposed to it um is a bit like not liking a television show. Uh, you may wish the show was canceled, but you don't really care one way or the other. Um, it's it's just abstracted away from your experience in, in a fundamental respect. And I don't know that um, we've ever been in this particular situation in the United States before. People have always, um, at least since um, the mid to late 19th century, people have always had to sort of pay attention to whatever the conflict was, Um, whether it was the Spanish-American War or or World War I or World War II, Korea, um, Vietnam, certainly. People were sent there, whether they wanted to go or not. And that tends to focus the mind a bit more. Now, during World War II, 50 million uh, men in the United States were eligible for the draft. 10 million 
were actually drafted by the end of by the end of the war. Um, one of them was my dad, uh, who was inducted in late 1944 towards the end of the war. He had tried to join the military prior to that and was turned down by the Navy. He was turned down by the Marines, um, and he got drafted and uh, served in, in Europe. Um, during the Vietnam War, I believe north of 2 million men were drafted during throughout the duration of that war. Um, out of, I think, a pool of like 27 million eligible for the draft. Really, the Vietnam War is when the wheels started coming off of conscription in the United States, which again had been um, a common practice in wartime since 1863 during the Civil War when uh, they needed some bodies. It was perhaps the nature of the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War wasn't the first instance in which people protested the draft. I think people protested the draft from the very beginning of its history um, in the United States. But in the 1960s and the early 1970s, the anti-war movement amongst um, service members, both draftees and volunteers, uh, grew over the years, um, partly because of the nature of the war, the fact that it was a colonial war in, in a real sense. It was a brutal war. It was an unjust war in so many ways. And, and people in the military were at the forefront of the resistance to that war. And it had reached a point in the late 60s when the um, conscripted army um, was a bit too far beyond control for the military's taste. And I think, um, you know, that's one of the reasons why the wheels came off of that particular endeavor. Um, also the fact that there was resistance at home growing resistance and the cost of continuing that war became too high. And that's why um, the Johnson administration and the Nixon administration um, in their tremendously slow way found a way to extricate themselves from it. But lessons learned, I believe, were that um, you no longer should draft people. That's something that has enabled the types of wars that we've had ever since Vietnam. It took a couple of decades, decades that uh, saw the rise of neoliberalism um, as an economic system, sort of limiting the options of young men, young women, for large sectors of the population, the military became an attractive option. It isn't that there weren't people who wanted to be in the military and thought that was a great career choice and they wanted to go and 
do something in the military. That's there's there's always folks like that, and that's their choice. Um, but there are people in the military, and I've heard them say so, that are there because they that was a good option for them. That was money. That was a way of getting an education. That was a way of getting a leg up in the world when there were really no other options. And that's true of a lot of people, um, particularly in a lot of remote communities with very few economic opportunities. And uh, I don't think that's particularly controversial. So there's a kind of a economic draft, really. But as the military stands right now, the percentage of the population that serves in the military is so tiny now. And the percentage of the population that is associated or, you know, either by family connection or friendship with people who serve in the military, um, families that are touched by the by, by military service in some way is a relatively small part of the population. When I was growing up, practically everyone's dad had served in the military at some point. Practically everyone I knew. Their father, what did they do in World War II? Well, you know, they were in the Navy or they were in the Army Air Corps or they, they did this, they did that. Everyone. It was not an alien experience to anyone. And those were the years when the Vietnam War started ramping up and friends of my elder siblings were veterans. Some of them were veterans. Not all of them, but some of them. We all knew people who were serving who had either volunteered or drafted. Um, we knew... Um, one or two Marines. We knew some folks who were in the Army. And so it was not it was not a terribly strange or unfamiliar experience for any of us. We weren't really separated from it by very much. In modern times, it is a rare experience. And like Dick Cheney, most people have other priorities. Most people don't want to serve in the military. And they don't have to. And that's one of the reasons why we have perpetual wars. The, the full burden of risking life and limb to prosecute these wars falls on a tiny minority of Americans. That's it. No one else is, puts themselves at risk at all in these wars. During the Vietnam era, during the World War II era, um, everyone had skin in the game. Everyone was a potential soldier in Vietnam. If you were a certain age, you were at risk. You could be shipped over, you know, against your will or go to jail. Or be faced with a really difficult choice. You know, either leave the country, go to jail, go to Vietnam, which is pretty bad. All of those options were bad. 
same thing when uh, same thing during the uh, during World War Two. You were drafted. You had to go. No choice. Nowadays, uh, these wars don't come out and get you. Not at all. And because of that, the vast majority of Americans can, you know, shake their heads, cluck their tongues, generally think that it's a bad idea to have these wars go on and on, but they're not, they're not connected to the enterprise at all. They don't have a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister or a father that's out there risking their life. They don't have that. They don't have that connection. They don't have that personal connection. Vast majority of Americans are that way. And without that impetus, and, you know, let me be plain about this. It isn't that people thought Vietnam was a just war. They just didn't want to get shot at. That's not true at all. In survey after survey for many years, people recognized how morally bankrupt and wrong that war was. Added to that it was the fact that you had to go fight it, <laughs> which sort of added fuel to the fire. Right? But people were against that war. More deeply against the war than the media was, more deeply against the war than... than uh, elements of the government was for for all the uh, subsequent propaganda about those points. I won't go into detail about that. That's for another podcast. There is one other element to the forever wars that makes them go on forever. What puts the forever in the forever wars? Well, one of them is the lack of conscription. We've discussed that. All those wealthy folks with families, young kids reaching their teen years. I try to picture what would happen if the draft board came along and said, okay, well, your son, you know, we're in a war in Afghanistan. Your son has to go and fight it. It would be like, what? Wait a minute. What's all this about? What's this Afghanistan thing about? That's what the parents would be saying. And that's what they should be saying. We should all take that attitude. We should essentially adopt service members. We should look at service members as if they are members of our own family because they are, in a real sense, they're a member of the human family. And they're out there because we allow it. They're out there because we have not stopped this policy. We have not demanded that it stop. And it's an outrage. So what we should do is we should, I don't know, um, could be specific about it, find a member of the military and quote unquote adopt them or just think of people in the military as your kith and kin. And how would you react if your kith and kin was out on the line in Afghanistan for a war that is really deeply pointless? 
in its 20th year and hopefully ending, but no one can be sure or on the line in Iraq for no reason. Okay. As I said before, there is another element to the forever wars. There's something else that puts the forever in a forever war besides conscription. And that's funding. It used to be when we had a war, there would be a tax. There would be taxes levied on the general population to pay for the war. There would be war bonds. Sure, that's voluntary. But there would also be taxes. And the taxes would be specific to the war effort. That's gone. They don't raise our taxes when they start a war. It isn't like our leaders say, okay, well, we're going to attack Iraq. We're going to invade Iraq. But it's going to cost a lot of money, so we need you to sacrifice. We need you to pony up more of your hard-earned cash. Now, mind you, that money is going to be spent anyway. And the money is going to come out of you in some way, shape, or fashion. It's either going to be borrowed on your behalf, or it's going to be... um, taken from you in other ways. But the upshot is George W. Bush, when he wanted to start his Iraq war, which he most assuredly did start, did not come to the American public and say, this is going to cost a lot of money and I'm going to have to raise your taxes, but we really should do this thing. It's important. He didn't do that because he knew that people would not accept that. What he did was, even though we had a bloated military budget that was probably in excess of 300 to $400 billion a year at that point, not including all the extras, he would put through Congress these supplemental appropriations for deployments. So the $400 billion or some odd you know, number at that time during the 2000s That was just paying for a military that basically stands still. If you want them to be deployed someplace and fighting, you had to come up with more money. So they would come up with these supplemental appropriations that they would pass separately from the military budget. And they would put those through. And those would be, I forget what the magnitude of them were. You could look it up. It's probably easy to find out. I don't know, $80 billion here and there, $50 billion, I can't remember. There were several of them. There were supplementals, and they, they would pass them, and they would sort of you know shame Congress into passing them. If a congressperson wasn't supporting the supplemental appropriation, they'd be accused of you know letting down the troops or whatever. But there was never any commensurate rise in taxes. In fact, they cut people's taxes, mostly rich people's taxes, but they put through their 2002 tax cuts, I believe, 2003 tax cuts. It was after the midterm elections. So they cut taxes deeply on on the richest people in the country. And, you know, uh, obviously the deficit shot up. I'm not a deficit hawk, but It was basically borrowing money to make rich people richer. 
and then it was borrowing money to invade and destroy Iraq. And again, shielded from the pain. So look, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but institutions have a practice of finding a way to perpetuate themselves. The military-industrial complex is such an institution. And the only way you can keep the ball rolling is if you somehow separate that institution from the general public. So you insulate the general public from the pain of either funding or participating in the wars that you start. So these wars become abstractions to people. They hear about it, they might get disgusted, and that did happen during the Iraq war. That definitely happened. People got worn down on that war. It was ugly. There weren't as many battlefield deaths as there were in Vietnam, but there were a lot of grievous injuries and a lot of deaths. More than 4,500. Tens of thousands of grievously wounded service members. And they're still paying the price all these years later. But again, the reason why we had this war for such a long time and the Afghan war for such a long time, I believe the thing that keeps these things rolling is the fact that they are, that the government has insulated taxpayers and ordinary Americans from the pain of maintaining a war effort. People don't have to pay for it and they don't have to fight it. And that's all they needed to do. So no matter how much people are against it, they're not going to stand in the street. They're not going to block the entrance to the White House to keep it from continuing. They'll complain about it, they'll grouse about it, but the government bets that in the end they'll give in. And they're not wrong. They're not wrong. I think you really need that personal connection. On some level, either, you know, either they're attacking your heart or they're attacking your wallet. So if we're going to stop the forever wars, if we're going to prevent them in the future, we need to do a few things. I mean, obviously we need to hold people accountable for starting them. We haven't done that. Nothing like it. I think the only people who have spent any time in jail over the Iraq war were Chelsea Manning and um, a couple of the people at Abu Ghraib, you know, junior um, torturers, basically. But the other thing is, you know, people need to be connected to the effort a bit more. That's why in all these years, you've never heard a politician argue to bring conscription back or to raise your taxes. Um, They've never argued to raise your taxes to pay for the war efforts. You've never heard that from anyone (laughs) because honestly, they don't, if they said that they would be unpopular and they would never get elected to anything. So it's kind of the perfect trap. Anyway, that's all I have to say about it. Thanks again for listening to Strange Sound. 
I really am interested to hear what you think of this. Good or bad? I could certainly use some improvement, I know. But there you have it. So please, um, check out our website at anchor.fm slash strange sound. That's all one word. Anchor.fm slash strange sound. You can find us on Twitter at, I say us, but it's really just me, at strange sound pod. All one word. Strange sound pod. On Twitter, you can give us feedback one way or the other. Plenty of ways to reach us. So, please, like us, um, check us out, subscribe. We're on Apple Music now. It took a few weeks, but we got on there. So we're on Apple Music, we're on Google Podcasts, we're on Stitcher, we're on several other platforms. If you go to anchor.fm slash strange sound, you'll see all the various platforms that we're on. And I encourage you to share, subscribe, review, feedback. I'll play your comments on the air. You just say whatever you like. I'll play it. (laughs) Within reason. You can rip on me. That's fine. Anyway, thanks. I will see you next time. And thanks for listening.